I would like every university in Canada to step up and say, we're just not going to do this any longer and to put that safety protocol in place that we don't even think about NDAs anymore. And, you know, I think that in a few years time, we're going to look back on this and we're going to think, what were we even thinking? a little bit different. I know, we switched roles. Yeah, I feel like we've kind of been talking about doing this since we started doing the podcast. Yes, we And have. we didn't necessarily know what topic exactly we were going to cover, but all of this stuff has been happening, Julie, and it seems... Yes, there's been a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm, it just seems appropriate that you would become one of our interviewees. <laughs> I'm a little self-conscious about that, but I think it's, I think it's useful. I hope so. I think it will be, for sure. Just to dive right in, can you give us a little bit of a nutshell version of what has been happening and what has led up to this lawsuit? Well, I'm being personally sued for defamation by a former colleague at the law faculty uh, who now resides in Trinidad. And this individual was terminated by the University of Windsor after a long-running investigation into his sexual and other misconduct, including sexual harassment and many other forms of misconduct. So he was terminated, as we would say, for cause, Mm -hmm. um, brought a grievance under the collective bargaining procedure and made a settlement in order that the university avoided going to an arbitration to defend their decision, which is often a difficult thing to do when you have, in this case, students who would have needed to testify. Unfortunately, As part of that settlement, they gave my former colleague a non-disclosure agreement. This was not something discussed with any of the people who were the complainants or anyone affected by his behavior. It was a deal between the university, the university union, supposedly representing me as well as him, Mm. and the uh, the individual concerned who who was terminated. So a little while after he left the university, I heard from a colleague in another law school that was considering hiring him who wanted to know some more about background because it's very odd when somebody shows up saying they've left a tenure position, but there's no information about why. Uh, And so I told the truthful account of the circumstances and he was not hired. He then showed up at a second law school (laughs) where in fact they did proceed to hire him, but I was then connected again by the initial colleagues to the dean at that law school where, again, I explained the circumstances of his departure from Windsor. He was upset because he had actually tried to get more information from Windsor, but, of course, Mm. had run into the NDA Mm -hmm. unbeknowing and did not get the information that I was now providing. And they just basically wouldn't tell him anything, right? They wouldn't tell him, no. And so because I spoke up about this, uh, I wasn't subject to the NDA. I was simply a faculty member giving Mm -hmm. a reference in the course of my employment. But because I spoke up about it, and there also has been some press coverage of this, Mm -hmm. subsequently, I'm now being sued for, I usually put, you know, air inverted commas around this, defamation. (laughs) Because defamation, of course, is something that's untrue. And in this case, everything I'm saying is true. Yes. That's a lot. That's a lot. It's not my favorite. (laughs) I know. I know. It's not my favorite either. Thank (laughs) you. uh, On your behalf. There's a lot of us who have been, you know, alongside you for all of this and and I've had tremendous support and which has been really great to see but I mean I think for all of us it just seems absolutely absurd the whole thing and really kind of because it is yes yeah 
What has been the hardest part professionally of all of this? Well, it's interesting. I was thinking about this question. In a way, nothing. Because to me, this is a no-brainer. Yeah. If there is somebody who I have, you know, solid reasons to know, and believe me, I do, is going to be a potential danger to students in all kinds of different ways, but including sexual harassment, mm. then I'm obviously going to speak up and protect students. And that doesn't matter if they're students in my own institution, which, you know, I spent 15 months mm -hmm. working on this with students at Windsor to initially have him investigated and terminated. Mm -hmm. Or students in another institution, it doesn't seem to me there's really any difference. Universities yeah. are supposed to be a collective mm -hmm. of safe places mm -hmm. to learn. And, you know, this obviously wasn't going to bring anybody any safety. So the decision to speak up wasn't difficult at all to me. Mm -hmm. And even since the lawsuit, it's not as if I have ever for a moment thought, oh, I should just agree that I'm going to keep quiet about this because then that's just perpetuating the wrong because yeah. this is a systemic issue. That this could be, be addressed, anybody yeah. who is being asked to provide a faculty reference or a student reference for that matter where the circumstances of that reference have been obscured and hidden and disguised inside a non-disclosure agreement. You haven't regretted doing this? No. But I know it's been difficult. So my next question is, what has been the hardest part personally? Personally, it has been hard. And I think that the hardest part has been that I have been very disappointed in the lack of speaking up that I've seen in some quarters about this. I, I appreciate mm -hmm. that it's a very scary thing to see somebody being sued for defamation. You wouldn't want it to be you. No. But I have been so impressed by, for example, the willingness to speak up of some of our students and former students and students in other institutions as well, and also very well supported by colleagues across the country and colleagues in the United Kingdom, mm -hmm. Australia, yeah. the United States, many, many supporters who've been wonderful, but very, very disappointed in the response of my own university and those closer to the issue where the attitude has been, uh, we have a non-disclosure agreement, we're not going to help, we have our fingers in our ears and we are in an underground bunker. <laughs> it does seem to be the attitude, yeah. So basically I've been thrown under the bus and it's difficult after 25 years working for an institution that I have, I think, worked very hard for yeah. and kept faith with to be treated this way. Well, I mean, I know you've written about everybody should, of course, and we'll, we'll link to that um, with this podcast episode, but you've been writing about this on Medium. Yes. And I know that's one of the things you've talked about is the feeling of uh, betrayal. And abandonment. And abandonment, yeah. yeah. So given all of that, how much this has disrupted your life and been really awful in so many ways, why is it so important to you to fight this fight? Well, first of all, because we cannot have a system in which we provide sexual predators with a special protection when they leave a workplace. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that, that strikes me as utterly bizarre about this, there's so many surreal parts of it, is that essentially somebody who has, has committed some sexual misconduct gets a leg up in their bargaining with their employer when they leave because the yeah. employer wants to hide it. Yeah. They have a shared interest in hiding it. So unlike somebody who you know was fraudulent or dishonest or maybe just didn't perform very well, the employer now really wants to hide what's mm. been going on as well as the perpetrator. And that has created this toxic bargain mm -hmm. in which both agree to hide the circumstances and effectively, as it's sometimes termed, 
pass the trash to yes. another institution. Yes. So it seems to me that we have to stop giving NDAs in these circumstances, not just universities, but churches, other workplaces, mm -hmm. other institutions. And I think that as a university professor for most of, of my working life, I feel very strongly about the need for universities to step up and, and, and to do the right thing here yeah. and to protect that safe environment of learning that should be so central to what we do. What specific things are you looking to achieve with all of this? Well, I had, before I was sued, I had a very <laughs> clear action plan because I, I was aware about, of the yeah. NDA and I was already working with university administration to create a new policy, which I will not claim they had agreed to, but we had got some way towards and we had done a lot of background research. I'd had a student, Jessica Proskos, helping me mm -hmm. with that working with the VP academic at Windsor to try to put together a policy that would restrict the university from mm -hmm. giving NDAs in cases of sexual misconduct. And that was something that I would like to return to. I would like every university in Canada to step up and say, we're just not going to do this any longer and to put that safety protocol in place that we don't even think about NDAs anymore. And you know, yeah. I think that in a few years time, we're gonna look back on this and we're going to think, what yeah. were we even thinking? It does seem to be that's kind of the way the winds are blowing anyway. So Certainly, if you look at what's happening, not just in Canada, but yeah. in other countries, there is more and more momentum around mm -hmm. this issue. And I'm confident that along with my wonderful lawyer, former Windsor grad, Natalie McDonald, and all the other people who are helping me, that we will prevail here. But it shouldn't be this difficult. So finally, I feel like this is important to ask, what advice would you give to any students who are experiencing sexual harassment or sexual violence at their universities? Well, there are many reasons why people don't want to report. And that's always enormously difficult, especially when it's a power relationship where the harasser or the predator is a faculty member with power over a student. Mm -hmm. So I want to start by saying it isn't obvious that everybody's going to come forward to support and we need to think much, much harder about how to make this a welcoming environment. And believe me, what happened at the University of Windsor around this individual was absolutely not that welcoming environment. Yeah. I hope it's getting better, but I have a feeling it has a ways to go. My advice would be find somebody to tell, mm. find a friend, find you know, a family member, find somebody inside or outside the university and think about what you want to do next. I think that one of the things that we have started to see happen is that people who have themselves experienced sexual violence are much more willing to be out there and to offer others the opportunity to talk and just figure out what steps they're ready to take. People aren't always ready to report right away, but that conversation that can enable them to decide what they need to do to keep themselves safe and also to realistically appraise what it's going to be like to go through mm -hmm. what are still very imperfect complaints procedures. Mm -hmm. The use of non-disclosure agreements or NDAs either as a constraint on a faculty member giving a truthful reference or as a means to silence victims is increasingly an issue in other parts of the world too, including the United States, the UK and Australia. I spoke next to Dr. Emma Chapman, an astrophysicist and Royal Society Research Fellow at Imperial College London. Emma is a member of the 1752 group which lobbies to end the use of NDAs in universities. And in this next segment, she tells her story. Hello, Dr. Chapman. 
Hello there. Is it okay if I call you Emma? Yes, that's absolutely fine. Okay, well, thank you so much for taking my call today in the Netherlands. And <laughs> I really appreciate you being willing to talk a little bit today for people uh, in Canada about how the issue that this podcast discussed is also relevant in many other countries, including the United Kingdom. Could you start by just saying a little bit about how you came, because you were the complainant in this case, how you came and decided to make a complaint about sexual harassment from a colleague at the university you were then at? So I started my PhD in 2010 in astrophysics and unfortunately immediately began to experience sexual harassment from a male colleague. began with a kind of weekly, daily request for hugs, to hold hands, inquiries into my sexual life, vice versa. I was forced to listen to details of his Mm. sexual preferences and everything like that. And um, over the course of three years, this was endured (laughs) in order to actually get some work done. You decided you only felt safe to make a complaint about your harassment when you moved on from that university to your current position in another university. Yeah, so... Yeah, a couple of after my first postdoc, I um, succeeded in getting a fellowship um, at a nearby university, but a different university. And as I left, I coincidentally found out that I had not been the first victim of this um, individual, yeah. and that really crystallised the situation for me. It removed any last part of myself which thought that it was my fault and at that point I I just was galvanized to make sure this didn't happen to the next student and so I did decide to make a complaint as I left that institution. And as part of that complaint settlement you were asked initially I understand to sign a non-disclosure agreement, an NDA, but you argued against that, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And and the reason for that was twofold. So I made my complaint and then the actual process lasted um, 21 months from start to finish. It completely overturned my life. So after oh, 21 God. months, when this came to an end, I was basically being retaliated against both by the university and the individual for making a complaint, despite there being enough evidence that, you know... And how was the university retaliating against you for making a complaint of sexual harassment? From what I can tell, they had made an agreement with the perpetrator to settle all of the complaints. So after 21 months, I didn't even get any justice because the university agreed with the perpetrator Mm. that for something that he did, that I'm not quite sure, they would throw out all of the complaints against him. And I believe it was that he accepted the sanctions on him, which included a two-year restraining order. Right. Um, against me, as in, as in, he's not, he was not allowed to contact me or go to any conference that I was present at for two years, and accepting a final warning. This kind and that, of thing. And so that think, was his punishment. Yes, that was his punishment, and he accepted those sanctions in exchange for all of the complaints. And there were multiple complaints against him being being settled. When you were originally asked to sign the settlement. I believe it had a non-disclosure agreement attached to it, but you said you wouldn't sign a non-disclosure agreement. Why not? Because I wanted to be able to speak out both to protect my career and also to um, reform the process that had happened because this 21 months hell that I'd lived through was entirely sanctioned by the own policies of the university, which I just couldn't believe, and it was all settled, and that was meant to be okay. (laughs) So you Um, wanted to be free to talk about it? I did. We 
brought a lawsuit against them to say, absolutely not acceptable. I want a confidentiality waiver. I want the right to be able to speak out. Right. So they instantly came back, as they do with all victims of sexual misconduct, as we can tell, within the UK, is that as soon as you ask something from a university, any form of recompense, now whether that's financial or whether mm. it's more utilitarian, for example, I want an extension on my contract because I've just yeah. had a year of going through it, or I want yeah. a refund of my student fees, whatever. Anytime you ask for that, they say, oh, of course, we'll give you that, but you have to sign an NDA. Right. And it's kind of their, their way of instantly jumping on an opportunity. It's exploiting vulnerability of right. students. And that's exactly what happened in my case as well. They, they said, look, we, we're not, we're not going to give you this waiver, but we are going to give you a lot of money to sign an NDA. So I had to say no. So I wanted so that to come very of you. What do you think should be done about this, Emma, in the context we were talking about universities, but of course this applies to any workplace where people are being pressured to sign an NDA as you were. Yeah, I think we need um, heavy regulation of the use of non-disclosure agreements um, in institutions in cases of sexual misconduct. I think that they are being um, used in a blanket fashion to mm. hide the accountability of institutions towards yeah. their students and their staff. And when you are hiding illegal activities, and, and nobody should doubt that we are talking about rape, sexual assault. We are, talk, we are not talking yeah. about a wink around the water tank here. Yeah. They are being used to hide disgusting activities. As a member of the 1752 group, we've been lobbying very hard on this. We've gone into Parliament. We've spoken to them. And happily in the UK, we're actually getting a lot of traction from the government on this. They are coming up with reforms on NDA use, which do say that they should never be used in cases in order to silence victims yes. of sexual misconduct. Excellent. But what we really need to see is the universities, for example, really buying into this because yes. like dragging them over hot coals, they just don't want to do it. And I actually think they're not going to do it individually. I think we need to force them as a sector to say, yeah. look, we know you've all done this. You've all done horrible exactly. things in the past. But right now, we have to just step forward together. We have to get rid of them right now. Right. And then we can actually start to solve the problems that these NDAs have been designed to hide for decades. Perfectly put. And that's what we're certainly trying to do here in Canada. And I fully agree with you that this is an issue that the universities need to be stepping up for. So thank you so much for telling us about your story today, Emma, and good luck with the work of the 1752 Group. Thank you. Thank you. Finally, I spoke with Connor Spencer, National Chair of Students for Consent Culture Canada, which coordinates activism on campus sexual violence and inadequate university policies among 45 Canadian universities. Connor told me how students have seen NDAs used to cover up sexual misconduct and to intimidate and gag victims. Hello, Connor. How are you today? Good, thank you. How are you? Good, good. And thank you so much for being willing to do this today because I think it's very important um, in talking about NDAs and sexual violence in universities to hear from a student activist like yourself. So could you begin perhaps by be telling us a little bit about your organization, or at least the organization that you head up, which is Students for Consent Canada. 
Students for Consent Culture Canada is basically a national student-led organization that's working to end campus sexual violence through basically three main things, which is outreach, education, and advocacy. So basically what that means is we're a team of folks from across Canada who started organizing together after the publishing of the Archer National Action Plan, which mm. was a document that synthesized a lot of the best practices that came specifically out of the grassroots student movements, uh, student anti-sexual violence movements on campuses across the country. And kind of after meeting each other through that document, we started working together as Students for Consent Culture Canada. And we're basically an organization that takes an explicitly anti-oppressive, intersectional and survivor-centric approach to our organizing against campus sexual violence. So would you tell me a little bit about how far has this reached so far, Connor? Do you have like chapters in different universities? For sure. So kind of how we work is we work to be kind of institutional memory and best practices to share with grassroots student movements on campuses. So instead of like opening chapters, that's kind of a top down approach. We actually are there to support the grassroots things that are happening on campus that the students have started themselves type thing. So we work with over 45 different student groups and student associations across Canada. Yeah. In uh, eight provinces. So very exciting. Oh, actually, sorry. That just changed nine provinces i just okay. spoke to someone in alberta oh, <laughs> last fantastic. week um fantastic. So, so basically you build on whatever student activism is going on around issues of, of sexual violence on campus so existing organizations exactly. or, or grassroots movements that's terrific tell me connor you know we're talking about non-disclosure agreements specifically in this podcast which of course is just one slice of how we come at the issue of endemic sexual violence on university campuses and what universities can and should be doing to protect students. Could you talk a little bit about why this issue of non-disclosure agreements is important for students? So there's basically three main reasons why NDAs are harmful for students and student survivors. And so the first one is that it isolates student survivors. They're unable to speak about their experiences or they um, worry about... If they've signed, yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, The second one is it uh, protects potentially serial abusers. So it's harder to keep track of if there's been multiple complaints against someone. And the third one is that it basically NDAs work to uphold systems of power and cultures in our institutions that are there basically to ensure the continuation of white supremacist, capitalist, colonialist, ableist patriarchy, which basically academia often is a tool of. When you're talking about the students who are silenced by NDAs, Connor, of course, some of these NDAs are signed by students and they are being used to gag people who've brought forward complaints, but they're also sometimes being used, and this relates to your third point, I think, to maintain systems of power because they're not Mm -hmm. actually being signed by complainants or survivors at all. They're entirely about protecting the person who is being terminated for sexual violence. And one of the things that is, is difficult for people to sometimes understand is, and maybe you can speak to this, is that this isn't just about protecting victims. In fact, often it's not about protecting victims at all. Yeah, exactly. I think the key thing that uh, I personally have learned through my anti-sexual violence activism is that uh, specifically university lawyers, um, a lot of times, or post-secondary lawyers, I should say, are coming at sexual violence complaints, and especially when it's sexual violence complaints again. They're looking at it in terms of the legal liability and responsibility of the institution rather than the moral responsibility of the institution and what is a duty of care that an institution has. And I think that's where we have to have a cultural shift in terms of how we are approaching these things. This issue that's at the heart of this about duty of care, 
I think, you know, we are increasingly seeing in case law, if not in Canada yet, certainly in um, England and Wales and in the US. Of course, universities have a duty of care not to hide what has gone on. That's part of how they should protect students. So what would you like to see universities doing about NDAs? I mean, can you see any reason to have them in certain cases when they're being requested by victims? you know, maybe in a discrete confidentiality clause, should we be saying to universities, you need to stop using these to protect people moving to other institutions? What would you like to see universities doing? So we have the position that NDA should not be used. Basically, what we need is for institutions um, to start demonstrating institutional courage rather than institutional betrayal. And I'm not sure we know what that looks like. But one of the mm-hmm. steps is definitely not using NDAs. And specifically in terms of maintaining anonymity, um, specifically around complainants when they come forward, that's something that can be included through proper policy and procedure yeah. that does yeah. not a, a require an NDA. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Very important. Are you hopeful that this is going to happen? I mean, you know, we've got a ways to go yet, but what are you seeing, you know, in your own work and in all of those other places that you're now connected to, to student activists? That's an interesting question. I would say I am both hopeful and frustrated, and I'm both hopeful and angry. And I think I'm not the only one. And I think for many years, all of all of us across the country who have been doing this work have felt like we're the only ones. But now these networks have grown. Everyone is sharing their stories and their best practices with each other, and we're all angry together. And that's when we're going to start organizing and truly changing uh, and pushing that cultural shift that we have seen happen in the last two years, which is super exciting. We're going to push it further. Let's end on that hopeful note. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. In other news. Welcome back to another segment of In Other News, where we share some updates from the world of access to justice. First up, former Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin wrote an article in Lawyers Daily that summarized some of the important discussion that took place at the annual summit of the Action Committee on Access to Justice in Civil and Family Matters. The summit also featured a report called Working Towards Accessible Justice, which showcased the innovation and action happening in relation to Canada's justice development goals. The report tracked 88 organizations in all 13 Canadian jurisdictions, with 504 activities advancing the goals and pushing change. We encourage all of our listeners to read the article summarizing the summit, and if possible, take a look at the full report as well. For our second story, the Law School Admissions Council announced last week that they will be implementing a new initiative to increase access to legal education and access to law school more specifically. The campaign includes stories from current law students and young lawyers describing their journeys to law school and the impact they intend to have. The campaign is designed to inspire more people to consider a career in law and equip them for success in their pursuit of law school. Of course, increasing access to legal education can be an important step in improving access to justice more generally. However, and not to fault the Law School Admissions Council, since this is beyond their scope, there are other big steps that are necessary in the context of opening, quote, the gateway to justice such as ensuring that law students are being trained to provide services in this modern era of the legal profession with the changing needs of the everyday legal consumer, or engaging in justice reform that makes the system easier for people to resolve their legal problems. 
For our third story, somewhat related to the LSAC announcement to ensure a diverse pool of applicants to law schools, a recent article from the CBC analyzed the appointments of judges from 2016 to 2018 and noted that Canada's judiciary is gradually becoming more diverse. Ray Adlington, president of the Canadian Bar Association, praised this as being significant progress in boosting diversity in federal judicial appointments. Quoting from the article, he explains, quote, It will promote access to justice. It will promote confidence in judicial administration if the judges actually represent the society. Historically, that has not been the case, but we're certainly moving toward that objective, unquote. We've linked to the article for a full breakdown of the data. Be sure to take a look. Next up, in case you missed it, NSRLP is collecting survey data from self-represented litigants who have been labeled as vexatious or been subject to a court restriction order. We've done research on vexatiousness before, and that is even the subject matter of the intervener application for the appeal in Alberta that we announced on the podcast a few weeks back. This survey should take no more than 15 minutes to complete, and we encourage all of our listeners to share the link widely. Lastly, another quick update about NSRLP. Last week, we published another blog post. This particular blog was written by Honorable Robert Bauman, Chief Justice of British Columbia, who is a member of our blog's steering committee. The article is a series of reflections on Professor Gillian Hadfield's arguments for legal innovation and the future of the legal industry at a recent forum in Vancouver. The article dives into innovative business models, unbundling, independent regulation models, and a user-centered industry. That's it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Join us next week for a conversation with Professor Laverne Jacobs from the University of Windsor, where we'll be chatting about disability rights.